Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronauts Podcast. This is our fifth episode. Uh, today is January 5th. It's actually Friday night. Ethan and I are just, you know, hanging out, talking shop, and because you know, we have obviously way better things to do than this podcast. <laughs> you, you know you're a true Petro nerd. If on Friday night you want to talk about Chevron, Exxon, <laughs> the WTI moves, it's going to be fun. I'm not sure this is helping my social reputation, but it's it's definitely probably helping my work reputation. So that's good. Um, so I think we do want to talk about a few fun things. So we did drop our podcast actually dropped this week, which is super exciting. So we have like congrats and high fives to that. Um, the show art is awesome. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up. So we have to thank the Digital Wildcatters for helping us with the show art and putting that together and really just thanking them for actually hosting this. So that is up. I think episodes one through three are out. Um, four was the one we did last week on the 24th, which was all about the executive orders and everything, which was super fun. And we will be diving into that momentarily to do sort of a recap. And by the way, she is your host, Trisha Curtis of Petro Nerds. My name is Ethan Bellamy. I'm with East Daily. We do midstream intelligence, so we should probably make sure everybody yeah, knows sorry. who we are. I am the host. This it's is okay. The host. She's yeah. just so anxious to yeah. get things going. I like yeah. that. And so we, ha uh, yes. Wait, and we need to thank other people too. Remember, we, we also need to thank your uncle for letting us use his rig. We do. So we <laughs> need to thank my uncle Butch for taking photo of us, photos Not of his us rig, his, uh, his by his house, by the pump jacks in, pump in Jack, Walt yeah. County and the nice background. And, uh, and extractions manifold. Um, extractions manifold. Yep. Yeah. Lots, lots of thank yous and shout outs. Uh, and I also this week in the, in the news of, of fun things with Ethan and Trisha, I, um, my, my website also just relaunched, so check out the website because it's new and pretty. Um, so it's a completely rebranding, new logo and everything. So I'm pretty excited about that. And we had a fun week. I was on David Ramson Woods' podcast. Um, I kind of refuse to call him DRW just because it just feels weird. But I was on his podcast on Monday, so that was super fun talking about the market. And holy and crap. You've really come around on DRW, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a lot you can... I, I have. I feel like you got to be sort of friends with everyone in the in this business. So, and he he and I he he didn't ask super controversial questions on the podcast. It was a great podcast. We had a lot of fun. He asked a lot of market questions, and we debated some things. But it was an hour long, so it'll be should be fun for folks to listen to. Well, I think you're both chatty Cathy's, so where he said in the podcast, he's like, he's like, you could play this back at slow speed and basically make it nine hours because I talk so. Put so much into a short thing. So I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yes, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Um, so this week, a lot did happen in the market, and Ethan and I are going to dive into it. But I think one of the first things to start, and we will recap sort of uh, where we left off last week with the executive order, but oil prices, WTI was pushing just shy of, it was under 57 at the close. Yeah. So let me let me give you some stats on the week. It was a great week if you're a long energy or in the business. So WTI up 9%, closed just the March contract, closed at 56.83. Brent was up 8%, 59.35. So that's a $60 price that the Europeans are looking at, which is pretty impressive. Natural gas rallied hard. There is a 
cold snap coming. So 288 is the March contract up 12%. And then the real interesting stat is that national average gasoline prices are above year over year levels for the first time since March. Yeah. And I was going to actually, I have a receipt and I was looking at gasoline prices. And this is something I want to mention when we get into talking about the executive order and everything. I think it's important to start talking about gasoline prices because everybody says that we're not going to, no one's going to feel it right until it's $5 a gallon. And I'm not, I'm not sure I believe that because when I fueled up in May and I have an F-150 that I barely drive that's sitting in the garage, um, I fueled up in May and it was $1.69 a gallon. And it, I think it was like half a you know, half the truck that I filled up and it was less than 35 bucks. Um, if I'm to fill up today, it's obviously we're, we're pushing near double that. Right. And when you start getting close to $3 and you start going over $3 and you still have, I mean, I know unemployment dropped and we're down to, you know, we're down to six, six, what is this? 6.1% unemployment. I mean, that's getting better, but all those people that are unemployed are definitely going to feel a 50 cent increase of the pump. Absolutely. I think that the American economy has had an enormous fiscal stimulus at the, you know, poor, poor outcome and, and to the detriment of U.S. shale investors. But nevertheless, the enormous supply created by the U.S. shale development has been underappreciated by the broader uh, populace and by economists, I think. And... With Biden coming in, shutting down supply, shutting down access to supply, um, I and and producers limiting their expenditures to free cash flow, I think we're going to see higher prices, and that's very regressive. You know, I mean, most of the people listening to this podcast, let's let's be honest, you can probably stomach, you know, higher fuel prices, higher natural gas prices at home, but a lot of people who are at the, the lower section of the economy, that regressive taxation is going to hurt. And I tweeted today, um, Ethan H. Bellamy on Twitter. It's the EFT posse. Shout out to the, the boys and the ladies. Um, that there's going to be some real teeth gnashing in Washington when higher consumer electricity prices, consumer natural gas prices, and, and prices at the pump start to trickle up politically and become a political problem. So I, I think that's underappreciated and that's going to mount and maybe we do need uh, more pain before people start to appreciate the business. I think everybody's saying this and I, I want to get back to that momentarily, but I, I think for a lot of the reasons I've talked about in previous podcasts, I'm not certain you're going to have that rise in oil prices that a lot of people on the political are discussing this in a political way or banking on. And so that makes me a little bit anxious that it's sort of going to give... Um, it's it's going to give this uh, administration a lot of leeway because uh, OPEC is sort of holding the bag and there's this unique opportunity. There's a lot to sort of unpack there, but I think from an oil... But just to, to boil that down, you think the Saudis and the Russians will eke out more and more production to win back market share and keep prices below 60. Is that I, fair? It's fair to a degree. I think that oil prices like rose and are steady. I mean, the oil prices right now are too high. Like they should not be, I mean, there's some good fundamentals in the market right now. We see U.S. doing okay, but I mean, used gasoline demand is not back where pre-COVID levels. We did, we've seen decent stock, stock draws. You pointed out to the weather, you pointed out your market stats. And then we had OPEC reassurance this week, basically saying, hey, we're going to keep this thing going. And, and they really have sort of micromanaged this and done well. But that reassurance is saying, okay, we're going to keep, you know, we're not going to let it drop. 
And then you, you're, we haven't seen the flip of that, of, hey, we're not going to let it go too high. I don't think it's that they're all going to try to eke out production. I think they're going to make a concerted effort to say, okay, we're, I mean, OPEC, Saudi Arabia cut a million barrels a day, but said, Russia, you can produce a little bit more. And probably next month, they're going to come to the market and say, we're going to produce another 500,000 barrels a day, as we did two months ago when they said that. And the market's not going to tank on that. But the reality is, is that they're just going to be okay. It's around $60 Brent. And even with all the craziness happening in the US, um, as we've talked before uh, earlier today offline, like this puts a lot of oper operators um, not exposed to federal land actually in a great position because prices are good. And that means that production is going to continue to eke out. And I have some theories on the on Texas in particular, but in lots of places in the U.S. that could actually do pretty well. I mean, there is opportunity in this business. I mean, it's what I do for a living and what I do with patronage is that I happen to be, you know, I'm bearish on the political side of this administration. I think I, I'm very op optimistic about the opportunities you can create in this market, um, especially at these price levels. All right. Well, let's talk about Texas then. <laughs> yeah. So I think we should do a recap. Um, we should do a little recap. Of what? Of, earnings? Not of earnings yet. No, no. We should do a recap of the uh, administration, of the executive order. Oh, so, here we go, folks. It's, it is time to party. So Trish <laughs> <laughs> is not ready to play around tonight. <laughs> no. uh, okay. So when we spoke with you on uh, January 24th, we were talking about the the executive orders that were already in place, and we were talking about the order number 3395 that the secretary, the acting secretary of Interior had put in place, which, by the way, was with regards to delegation of authority, and it was with regards to actual permits. Now, what gets confusing is this, and this is confusing because we did have a slug of earnings that came out from, from the majors, and talking about permitting leasing gets a little tricky. So I think what's interesting is that we're still, like, people are still referencing this order of the first one, right? And that's with regards to permits, um, and it's a little unclear. The problem is we had an executive order that really was the nail in the coffin. And so if you if you think that what I'm saying is opinions, and it is definitely my opinion, but I, I trust me, I, I do do the research, and I do believe that... Um, this the oil and gas industry is in for a really, really hard four years. And this executive order is on tackling climate change, tackling the climate change crisis at home and abroad. This was the executive order on January 27th. It's massive. I have it here. It's very dense. If you read it, um, what you'll notice is that it's broad and it's very sweeping. And I'm not the only one that said those those types of terms. We've heard it on from CEOs on earnings calls and we've heard it on the media, et cetera. But it does mention... Um, taking a government-wide approach to tackling the climate crisis. And what it does is it gives the administration authority to regulate everything in a, hey Axel, um, to regulate everything in a, from a climate change perspective. So it starts meaning that when people say, well, you're not gonna go, they're not gonna go after private land or they're not gonna go after existing leases. Well, they may be able to, because I don't know if you remember, but after 9-11, when you do, when you deem something a national security, hey, when you deem something a national security interest, it you have a lot of um, you have a lot of ability to do things, and so if this is deemed a national security interest, which in here it is, they're going to be able to do things. It is interesting too that they know that the part on oil and gas development that they talk about on public lands and offshore waters, they do mention this as leases. So something we'll all talk about surely is in these earnings calls is there's a bit of a confusion of well we're going to have the leases, but the other order mentioned the permits. So is it? Are you going to have the lease? Are you going to, is your existing lease okay? And are you going to be able to get permits on your existing lease? And something Chevron mentioned was 
they have these existing leases in offshore Gulf of Mexico, and they're assuming they can get the permits for them. And I'm like, well, the other order said that you're not going to have the permits, that that's suspended for 60 days. And ConocoPhillips, who just purchased Concho, <laughs> mentions that they um, they just think it's going to be 60 days, that this is a 60-day moratorium just for the administration to kind of figure out what they're doing. And I'm like, nobody's very clear on what this is about. Is no, that wishful thinking? I think it's, it's absolutely wishful thinking. Mm. And BP is amazing because I can't wait to roast them shortly. Um, but <laughs> BP has a two-hour-long earnings call. And they, they talk, they're they like, we welcome, they welcome the um, rejoining of the Paris Climate Accords. And they welcome all this, this legislation and everything, which I'm, I'm sorry. Like, it just... Uh, it, the math doesn't actually work on on some of these things. So the point I make for all this is that all these companies are in different places on how they see this. And I, I would say that while I say there's opportunity and there's certainly risk, um, and I did break that down the numbers, I've been doing it for my clients, and I feel very confident in actually really understanding what's happening in New Mexico. And this is where I think people in the industry, service companies, everyone, um, and I pride myself with the businesses looking at the data and the numbers. But Governor Abbott did issue an executive order in response. So basically, he's saying he's not Governor wrong. Abbott of Texas. Yes, sir. Right. Governor Abbott of Texas issued an executive order relating to relating to all of the... Pause. All right, we got interrupted by our other co-host Axel, the German Shepherd. So we're back now. <laughs> Axel is my real boyfriend, uh, and definitely dominates. My All right, life. so Governor Abbott of Texas. Yes, Governor Abbott of Texas issues an ex- ex- issues an executive order in response to Biden's sweeping regulations, and so he goes after and basically says this was on the twenty eighth, and he says like basically it's whereas the energy industry is vital to economic growth to the state of Texas, fueling prosperity for all Texans by creating jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So he goes in and basically his executive order is to combat every piece of Biden's executive orders that are going after um, the state's energy production. So he made it very clear, if you saw him in the media and in some press things, that essentially they are going after private land that and they're, this is impacting Texas and their way of life. And that he was in he was in Midland when I believe when he gave his speech. Um, so it was a very big deal for him to say this. And I think it's really meaningful in terms of the industry to say for the state to say we're open for business. They are going to capture Texas is going to capture a lot of revenue, mm-hmm. a lot of people moving there. Um, and I think in just in general, the business, if you're investing, if there's any dollars going into oil and gas, they're most likely going into Texas now. Any new dollars, because there's at least some sense of security there. Uh, and go- the governor does have a track record because he did push back um, on a legislation that the Obama administration had um, had tried to put through. So I think he does have a track record for this. So I just think that's that's important to point out. But on the New Mexico side, and I did show the story these- is a lot different in New Mexico. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's good. night and day, and it's sad because New Mexico is one of the poorest U.S. states. The resource economy is incredibly important to their fiscal outlook, and production's going to eventually head down. It might actually be flush in the short term because of uh, activity ahead of this this ban, but long term, it's not looking good for New Mexico. No, it's not, and I, I think that's exactly the point. I think we do. Taprock did just add a rig, so they're they're running five rigs. But the sad thing is when so when you look at these permits, and I mean to say this in a very like concrete analytical frame of like how I look at you know how I I break down the numbers and look at the math. You can look at a map of the permits in New Mexico, and the problem is is that if you break them out individually, so Exxon has like six hundred permits, and I I put a, a LinkedIn post this week, and I was. 
Interesting, I would just basically it was the CNN article that said Biden did not ban fracking. And I was very uncomfortable with it because for all intents and purposes, he did ban fracking. Now, on federal land. Now, you can get into the semantics of what ban, technically ban. And I had all these industry people who were pre- pretty upset with me saying, you can't say he banned fracking when he didn't actually do it. The intention is to ban it, and it's it's new permits on federal land. And I think actually the way the legislation is written in this executive order be careful, guys. It's pretty broad and sweeping, and it may creep into more than just future permits. So the point I'm making is these permits that are actually permitted, 3,466, according to Inveris raw data, that those permits are not all going to get drilled up. Because when you go into each company and you look at where Exxon's are, they have 600. Yes, all theirs that are grouped together, those might get those are going to probably get drilled up because it makes economic sense for them to do that. EOG, if they have a, you know, it, they're kind of chunked up as well. Many other operators, though, it's sparse. It's few and far between. Chevron has doesn't have that many. I mean, they have a couple. I believe Chevron has, um, I believe, um, they're not even on the top, like, is it top six? Exxon has over 600. EOG has over 500. Devon has almost 500. ConocoPhillips has 259. That's buying Concho. Taprock has 161. But when you look at... So some fraction of those will be hit with multi-well pad drilling, but there are some other ones that are you know, on the periphery or, yeah. or not not contiguous and therefore aren't going to have as good of economics because you can't spread the DNC costs out. of. Well, you're just going to have one right. well here, one well here. You know, right. you need it. You got to develop this. We know in the Permian Basin and known especially in the Delaware with the depth and maturity and, you know, all this people talking about drainage and, you know, we space the wells too tightly when you overfrack them that you have to basically do them at once. So it's not like you can go and Trust me, the the it, everyone knows this in the New York community because they've and Wall Street because they pushed everybody on it, saying we don't have the inventory anymore. And the industry kind of pushed back and was like, well, we'll just drill them all at once, and then we do have the inventory. So if you're if you're precluding operator, if you're telling them how to drill based upon this permitting structure, they're just not all going to get drilled because it's it. not going to make economic sense, and you're so it may not happen. So when when that CNN article and others say Chevron and Exxon can just frack away. They can frack away to the extent that they have the permits. And if you're not issuing more permits, and the thing is that these are federal leases. So they entered into a contractual a contract with the federal government, paid them for the leases under the premise that they would be able to permit. Now, there's going to be some legal issues with that. And I'm sure there are already, I think there are already legal battles. This is going to be taken up to many, many levels and may hit the Supreme Court or t- maybe, who knows. But these are... This is why this was done via executive order and these orders, because this would never have passed through Congress, because it's it's not very. So there's a silver lining there. There's a there is silver lining. But it, I, that's where I think the next two years, they're just we might just have to sit and wait. And maybe some of these operators, the reason they're being quiet, maybe Exxon, the reason they're not saying a ton is because maybe they think, you know, they can just like fight this. And then two years from now, they'll be able to go back and go to town. But the story is not the same, I think, for folks in Wyoming who are smaller, less well capitalized. You know, it's, it's kind of a different story. And then I think, you know, like if you just look at where the drilled but uncompleted wells are, I mean, it's all there's two like we I did a heat map of this uh, and it's kind of amazing because it's basically like you have a big chunk in the Midland where your ducks are. And then you have this massive chunk right in like southern New Mexico. With, so you have all these ducks. Those will get done. Those are Drilled wells, you just have not fracked them yet, and there's about a thousand. So you do have some running room. So when you see activity looking great in the in New Mexico in the near term, that does not mean that they're not in for a hell of a rough couple of years. So that's that's the point I want to make there. All right. Do you want to go to the big 
earnings reports and and how they vary. You want to start with let's start with something positive. Let's talk about Chevron. Yes. Okay. We should start with Chevron because Chevron is Chevron is actually pretty positive, and um, Chevron's earnings is positive. They um, they're one of the few companies that I think did a really good job of explaining where they're at with the business um, and sort of just telling you know one telling their story, which does look a lot better than their peers in terms from a debt perspective. Uh, they bought Noble. They were one of the first companies to actually do the acquisition. Um, obviously, they were in a good position because they got a you know, a billion bucks in cash from the, the pre- from bowing out of the previous acquisition with Anadarko. So they bought Noble and then they were able to sort of ride the storm actually pretty well. And then, they, so they first purchased and then they closed first as well on the on the acquisition front. And it doesn't look like, on the face of it, it doesn't look too bad. And they, they have a pretty well diversified portfolio like globally as well, but it was really their tone. I don't know if the Exxon tone wasn't bad either, actually sounded a little better than previous ones. It wasn't defensive though. It was very much, we're sort of in charge. And their responses on the federal stuff were pretty interesting because they- Chevron or, or Exxon? Both, well, both of them. Chevron, yeah. Exxon kind of dodged it. Um, or didn't talk really directly to it. And then Chevron really talked about, you know, I mean, their lower break-evens, their flexibility, their ability to invest, you know, should they have pressure in the U.S., they're going to be, you know, they'll be flexible and they'll invest elsewhere. And they made those comments directly, like, if you're going to, if the U.S. gets too onerous, we will invest our dollars elsewhere. And that's something important, I think, that, the U.S. folks in and outside the industry need to understand this oil is going to get produced, whether it's produced in the U.S. or not. We, we are consuming, you know, pre-COVID, we were consuming 100 million barrels per day. At the low end, we're probably consuming 95 million barrels per day, probably higher than that, at close 97 million barrels per day. That You're still consuming that. So nothing has changed in, from a consumption behavior standpoint, and this is going to get produced, and companies like Chevron will just go abroad and produce it there. And I think that the Middle East is probably going to welcome these companies with open arms shortly if if those if the regulatory side does get too um, burdensome for, for these companies. Yeah, I mean, if you look at somebody like Hess that reported this week, their budget is split between Guyana and the Bakken. And guess how that... CapEx is going to get split if the Army Corps of Engineers under the Biden administration shuts into Dakota Access, which you think might happen this week, which I, would be huge. I do. And I um, we can we can we will get into that in a moment. But do you want to keep going on with the earnings? Yeah, no, no, no. Let's yours? keep going. OK, so Chevron, although the thing about Chevron I thought was very good was that and that this is where I'm going to have to rip on the other operators a bit is that um they're not really investing in the renewables for the sake of investing in them. So they get a lot of, they had a lot of, you know, every company talked about ESG, every company talked about renewables, every company talked about emissions to a degree. Um, and, and, you know, as much as Jim Cramer, I like to kind of give him shit as well. He had basically said through this whole thing, you know, if you want to invest in two companies in oil, it's Pioneer Natural Resources and it's Chevron. And I was thinking about that. And I thought, well, he's kind of has something right here about these two companies because they are extremely well positioned for this this piece, you know, right now. Um, but he also mentioned this week that, you know, or last week when the after the earnings, he was basically saying, oh, my gosh, how much all these companies just talked about renewables. You know, these are oil companies and all they're doing is talking about renewables. So interesting enough, Chevron basically, you know, kind of pushed back. And so they got a few questions saying, you know, how come you're not running, you know, full steam into this? And they basically said, look, 
you have a low interest rate environment. This is a boom market, you know, or this is kind of everybody's sort of going into it. There's like froth on this market. And they didn't say that to that degree. But I mean, you do have low interest rates. Robert Norton mentioned this in um, Colin and Robert's Roundup podcast last week, is that you have negative interest rates in some European countries. Basically, if you develop a SPAC and you say you're going to go into, you know, renewable, you and I could literally go right now, raise $100 million and say, we're going to start a, a we're going to start an electric vehicle company, not have anything, not have any assets um, and make us back. And it will, it will, boom, we'll be able to get the money and we'll be able to leave. And that's, there's so much froth on the SPAC market, we should be drinking Guinness right now um, because it's just ridiculous. So they kind of <laughs> lean in, they kind of lean in. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> All, right. All right. So interest rates, we should point out that um, if you don't hawk the yield curve, I'll forgive you for that. But we did hit all-time lows on the one-year and the two-year this week. So absolutely, you know, money supply is spiking, which is something we haven't really talked about, um, the the U.S. dollar and it's the exchange rate. But, you know, if you flood the market with currency, you get inflation. So that's something we'll probably address in a later podcast. But we do have all-time low interest rates. Um, interestingly, on Chevron, we saw them tweak higher their capex to 14 billion while exxon brought it in by roughly three and a half billion dollars yeah and that's because their debt i mean it was pretty i mean exxon has 67.6 billion in debt and that's where i think it's really come home to roost for them is that um you know they chose a different strategy during the during the course of 2020 exxon decided to increase their debt and just sort of weather the storm and chevron took a different approach but they they sort of had a different They've took, taken a different approach to this whole thing. Um, and they, so this this low interest rate piece though is, I, I think it's it's very important because the, um, I actually called a banker this week just to see for kicks and giggles what it would, if I wanted to borrow. I don't think that's the phrase, by the way. What, for kicks and giggles? Yeah, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, I mean, I wanted to know, <laughs> I wanted to know if I was to grow my business and I thought this would be great for the podcast to mention this, but if I wanted to grow my business, what, what you know, what could I borrow at? And yeah, Granted, interest rates are rock bottom. You know, I could refinance this house and, and pull out, you know, equity. It would be a 9% interest to get a $50,000 loan. And because that's unsecured debt. Now, I literally just said that's highway robbery and not a prayer chance of Mel. Am I doing that? Like, that's that's just insane. Right. But I was thinking, if you're trying to grow your business and doing that, that's that's kind of ridiculous. So it does matter in terms of the oil and gas community and the ability, the cost of capital and the ability to get that capital. So for renewables, the money is going into it. You have low interest rates. People are this, um, you know, it is getting very bubbly. It looks like it's getting frothy and you have this money going into it. Repsol is a, is a Spanish oil company and they have literally said just the other day, they said this week that they're divesting or they're spinning off their renewables. Why are they spinning off the renewables? Because it's a great time. If you already had renewables in your portfolio, you're going to make a crap ton of money selling it right now. And this is something that people, if you listen to just the majors and the European companies, you can learn a ton right now about this business, about the oil market and the renewable market. Because it just isn't matching up. And so Chevron was great. They're really one less good listen to because when they're asked about this, they basically said, look, if it fits with our portfolio, if we can make money doing it, we're going to. But we they basically say they're not, you know, in all, in so many words, they said they're not the experts in renewables and that it may not make that much money and it needs to compete within their portfolio. Um, they talk about lower carbon, lower emissions and all that stuff too. It's not like they don't. But I think it just 
puts but, in it. But it's not the driver of their management philosophy exactly. right now. It's not the driver of the management so philosophy. So we're going to focus on returns rather than focus on virtue signaling. Yes. And I think that's extreme. It's extremely important. No, it's not virtue signaling. And they even got compliments in their call of saying like, hey, if you get the pressure and they're like, no. And somebody was like, that's great. The fact that you're not leaning into that pressure. Because by the way, and I have to tell the listeners of anyone like, is it increasing your share price performance? Go look at BP stock. Um, go look at Shell stock and put them against Chevron. And I'm not saying Chevron's doing well because no oil and gas company is doing well. And we know that energy is 2%, if not less, of the S&P 500. But that's the state sort of that we're in right now. And that's that's what these operators have to deal with is from a publicly traded company standpoint, they're not in favor no matter what. I just don't think there's anything they can do from an ESG standpoint, you know, to a significant degree of investing in re renewables that's really going to make the money. And I think the renewable side, it is really hard because BP's call, this is kind of amazing. It's, um, we'll, we'll get into this BP roast a little because I have to. It's it's two hours long. So the call's two hours long. It's really dense. And um, they mention, so when they're asked like offshore, you know, concerns about offshore, they literally pivot into wind. They mention wind 24 times in their earnings call, which is, I mean, the the push on the renewable side, it's just massive. Like you wouldn't know you're necessarily listening to an oil company call unless you, you know, rewind it and made sure you started at, at, at BP. And they talk about their convenience stores and everything they're doing. And But it, there's so many questions about um, like the green, the green stuff and how renewable they're getting. And then they get questions on like, are they going to be making money with this? And it's pretty amazing when they're... Um, they, they're saying, well, we're going to we're going to bucket our hydro. We're going to bucket things a little bit differently when we report. So they're going to separate oil and oil is going to be reported as oil. Gas and lower carbons are going to be are going to be reported together. So that'll be interesting how they do this. And then when they talk about um, when they talk about their wind, which is kind of amazing. So offshore wind and there there's some great things like I think. I think the renewable space has a lot of running room. I'm not ripping on renewables because it doesn't directly compete with oil and gas. It has a role to play. And I think you can make money in it, but like in any business, it'd be really damn smart and very strategic. But they say offshore wind in the United States, it's a longer cycle business, obviously compared to solar. So you wouldn't, you won't be looking at cash flow from operations from that business in 2025, but you will be looking at it in 2030. So 20, it's 2021, folks. So, you know, nine years <laughs> can, out. Can you imagine someone saying, we're going to drill this well and we won't get cash flow till 2030? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, what's interesting to me about this is um, I read a report by one of the bulge bracket banks that made me laugh really hard, which is, you know, the the existential threat to, to midstream from, you know, uh, the, the zero carbon push. Which it, there's this narrative out there that we're gonna shut down oil and gas consumption, which is the primary fuel of human civilization, and it's just not gonna happen overnight. And it just it just makes me laugh when you know it, it, there. It seems like the the mainstream narrative is just uh, it's just an alternate reality versus what actually happens. I mean, if you look on the road, the road is not filled with electric vehicles; it's filled with pickup trucks you know it's like your f-150 in the garage it just and that's not going away they're not no one's gonna snap their fingers and make those go away so i, I don't know it's just it, well they it, they it just, think they think they so I, I think there is a bit of a i mean it's hard if you're if you're watching bloomberg and cnbc and you're listening to all the 
all the SPACs on the on the electric vehicle market. And I mean, they're pretty intense. Like I had some articles on here and I'm I'm sure that the uh, Colin and Jake and, and Robert will talk about, they do a good job on this clean tech side of discussing it. But I mean, GM and Ford basically said they're reducing their, their truck manufacturing, not because of EVs, um, but because of they're not getting the microchips, the cards, um, because there's a massive shortage of them right now. So they all are reducing their, their truck manufacturing and the GM is blowing up because they're going all, you know, electric. And then Apple, obviously the rumors are, not rumors, actually. Apple's going with Hyundai to make this this car. And so you can see that there's a real momentum shift in this. There is. Like, mm-hmm. I don't disregard that that electric vehicles are, you know, people are investing in the future. But to penetrate the market, it's very difficult to, like, actually from, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of vehicles being sold each year and adopted. And that's where it gets complex of, like, that's where the piece, that's the only way when we talk about renewables competing with oil and gas, that's, that's how they compete. And that's not something I think that, in general, I mean, Chevron explains that very clearly. Their CEO does that. You know, they're not super concerned about that in the near term, and that's that ninety, you know, ninety-five to hundred million barrels a day demand that just is not. It doesn't go away overnight, um, and it isn't industry talk and talking the book. That's that's just literally the facts of reality. Is that that is what's on the road, and unless they ban internal combustion engine sales new and used, that's the only way you're going to impact, at least in the U.S., immediately. It is a very strange time when defunct retailers go to the moon (laughs) on market manipulation and real companies producing the core fuel of human civilization are on the outs. Yeah. Very odd. And that's, I think, where people have to be really, we do have to be really careful of understanding bubbles and thinking, um, you know, I... I'm not old enough to be honest to say that I, you know, intimately studied the dot-com bubble, but come on. I, if, I am. If you don't, yeah, if you don't <laughs> think this looks somewhat like the dot-com bubble, you have low interest rates. You have everyone, if it says green on it, if it's got a SPAC, I mean, the SPAC side just in general is, you can make a crap ton of money, but I thought SPACs were literally prior, I mean, it was what, CDEV was a SPAC, right? Centennial Resource Development was a, a a SPAC for an oil side. But now everybody just creates a SPAC and money goes. Richard Branson just bought 20, 23 and me or 28 and me or whatever that the company is. 23. 23 Cro- and chromosomes. Me. Yeah. And that's like the, you know, listening to the CEO talk about how amazing that company is and what it's doing now. I mean, this was a company that people just wanted to know what their ancestry was. And now they're saying it's all about health and everything like Come on, people, you're, this is we're getting stretched here. Like the 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 valuations of these companies are beyond stretched. Even people can't people can't even justify. I mean, there is no just justification for Tesla other than it's, you know, the fanboys and the hype and everything. But it, it's out of reach. And so the shoe can drop and this can be kind of a mess. And it the whole thing is a bit hilarious. And if you're um, if you're looking at the market and you're looking at the negative interest, negative interest rates in Europe and the easy flow of capital and just how oil's not in favor, it makes sense to me that there's bubble territory and there's stuff that's actual real commodities and real companies that aren't getting the love and that things just aren't quite matching up. It just doesn't make any sense. But quickly back to BP before we shut this, uh, because it's it's interesting again, because Again, this really long earnings call, you just have to kind of, you kind of, I kind of got to tease them a little bit because um, they also call resilient hydrocarbons. So one, there's, we'll get to the, re- the resilient hydrocarbons. And within these resilient hydrocarbons, Rosneft is mentioned in here. Um, and that's interesting because <laughs> Rosneft, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but they've been getting, they've been getting, you know, uh, they've been getting some flack about Rosneft because obviously Rosneft produces oil. 
Newsflash, BP produces oil people. So this company still produces oil. Rosneft, they have a 20% stake in it and they produce oil. So when they're asked about, you know, maybe divesting and everything, like part of their, their Rosneft is making the money and it's low cost. But they basically just said, um, and Rosneft has some of the most resilient hydrocarbons in the world. Our production cost per barrel in BP, I think we're at 670 on their way to six. Rosneft's lifting costs are $3 a barrel. So this, so the first thing is it's actually consi- it's consistent with strategy in terms of resilient hydrocarbons. And the second thing that I would say is that from an environmental performance perspective, I think it's it's important for that people look at the facts and the facts are maybe surprising to some people. Rosneft's greenhouse gas intensity per barrel of oil produced is below 30. In fact, it's below many of the majors, including BP. So they're saying that Rosneft's, I mean, that Rosneft's actually greenhouse gas emissions on the barrel, their their greenhouse gas intensity is lower than theirs. I mean, really? Like All right. I this made my blood boil because some doofus on Twitter posted that we don't need US shale because the methane venting from the Saudis and the Russians is lower than the US. And we cannot tolerate this level of idiocy because you know, I, I I mean, I responded kind of tongue in cheek, like, what's the bone saw per MCF ratio? I mean, they were talking about autocrats that do horrible things. And we want to shift our consumption to finance Russia and the Saudis at the expense of Appalachian drillers. This to me is insane. And it tells you how far and how how just off the spectrum people are obsessed with greenhouse gas emissions as if that's more important with than you know fueling these autocracies which i i think is it's ludicrous and it it's also so perilous from an energy security standpoint but more so does anyone seriously believe that rosneft is concerned with environmental standards. Like, no, how can anyone believe that? And statement? they're going it's preposterous. so. The whole point of this questioning is they're going into the Arctic. They're going to the Arctic because literally, um, if things are melting, they're able to go do more stuff in the Arctic. They're going to be unleashing LNG, ex- you know, LNG exports from the Arctic. And this this point about the energy security is it's huge, and it's it's that reducing production in the U.S. And the studies are going to come out on this, um, but you literally can just by banking on that we're going to increase tanker traffic from tankers from abroad to the U.S. by importing that crude oil and that we are guaranteed going to increase crude oil by rail. So this is something we did 100 years ago, people moving crude oil via rail um, in rail cars is going to increase from Canada to the U.S. And we're going to increase it. And as we'll talk about shortly, we're going to increase it from North Dakota around because we're going to take away the pipelines, which is a very efficient mode of transportation. Maybe, but, but it worries me. This article from uh, this article from Bloomberg on the thirty on January thirtieth was talking about the U.S. U.S. oil pushes pushes clean shale as Biden mounts climate attack, and they stack up these things. So this is where I want to you were you were pushing me, and others have been pushing me to look for the silver lining and the bright spots in this. And this industry is exceptionally innovative. So if you tell this industry, look, you can go to business, you can do this if you reduce reduce your methane emissions, then tell them that and let's do it. Because trust me, if you're looking for a group of people that can engineer their way out of a problem, this is the industry that can do it. And it's particularly in the US. So favoring foreign oil over US innovation, I'm, it's the wrong bet. It's just not going to work. The These 
the not just U.S. oil, but the amount of innovation, the nimbleness and the flexibleness is huge. And you can listen to the Digital Wildcatters podcast, the Oil and Gas Startups podcast, and hear it. And, I mean, and tip the hat to our Canadian listeners as well, because I, yes. I would say North America. No, North America yeah. in general. Yeah. And they, if you look at the greenhouse gas emission intensity of oil sands and how much it's been reduced in 10 years, I mean, no one pays any attention to the innovations that the oil sands have done in the past 15 years because it's not a, not a sexy topic. They've, they've made huge reductions in it. And from a life cycle standpoint, it's right there with, the, I mean, there's m- many crews that are, that are higher. I think, th- so they, they put a chart out in Bloomberg and it's the greenhouse gas emissions per barrel. And they say U.S. Bakken is, with no flaring, is the lowest. So it's actually, they compare it to Saudi Arabia and Russia's um, different ones. And then they say U.S. Bakken flaring, which is only slightly higher than Russia. So here's the problem with this is that greenhouse gas emissions per barrel. Let's, if we're talking about a life cycle, when you get to the life cycle, and if it is indeed about emissions, but guys, this is just, this isn't about emissions. This is about many, many more things than that. And so then you get to the car or Athabasca oil, you know, Canadian oil sands that has a much more higher intensity. But the problem is you're barely higher, even if you're flaring all of it. So if you reduce the flaring and you capture this stuff, you're telling me that you're, you're the lowest in the business. There's just not going to be any excuses left when the industry, I believe most of the measurements now are standardized. So you know, there's flyovers and there's different ways to measure this. So the, the industry does have to get ahead and fast yeah. saying we have this, but you have to have some reporting. Well, well just a good, a good anecdote from this week. We actually ran into each other at a dinner that we didn't know we were both invited to, which was fun. I, I, I put a suit and a tie on this week. It felt so good. That might sound weird to people, but it felt like normalization was coming back. But uh, we, we had a dinner with Encino. Mm-hmm. And um, this was is a portfolio company of uh, BP Energy Partners, BPS and Boone Pickens, uh, God rest his soul. Um, and they do continuous emissions monitoring on site, and they have incredible data. And uh, I learned quite a bit about how low-hanging the fruit is to reduce uh, fugitive emissions and, <clears throat> and compliance on air quality. Um, it really starts with changing the oil belts and filters on compressors. Yes. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit if we want to go that route. And before that, even like on older wells, on stripper wells and stuff where the pumpers, it's it's making sure the hatches are right. And this sounds simple and and people, you know, maybe listeners in the industry will say we fix a lot Mm -hmm. of that. There are a lot of older companies out there. There are hatches that need to be checked. And Mm -hmm. this, you know, I grew up around production and my dad pumped oil wells, my grandfather pumped oil wells. And trust me, you need the right people to do it right. And they actually know what they're doing. They're shutting off the valves and they're doing this stuff. There are ways to address the simple stuff of this first. Um, and then you really go after the hard right. stuff. And that company, that dinner was hilarious also because he was there and I showed up late and I was sort of dragged into the dinner and then I saw him at the table, which was really funny. And the conversation was great. It was not, it was the first time I've been out to dinner with 18 people. I mean, that was a lot of I'm people. sure we were probably violating some law, so let's um, just keep that on the deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Polis would not be happy about that. We're, we're, we are in Denver, folks. So the tables uh, are split up. Yeah, we're not in Houston. Yeah, so. we we there was no marijuana smoked at the dinner. There were no psilocybin mushrooms out on the table. Um, we we managed to uh, skate by the homeless people that were outside, which the the Denver folks want to um, just allow to vacate the city center now. Trisha doesn't want me to get too political, but I'm just going for it. <laughs> I I don't have a problem. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go back real quick to uh, I'm gonna go back real quick to, to Dakota Access. No, hold on. We'll get, we'll get there in just a second. We're gonna okay. go to. Right. Gulf of Mexico on um we're going to talk about the Gulf of Mexico for for 
BP. So okay. the Gulf of Mexico is actually a pretty big deal when we talk about this executive order because both the, the secretary one, order number 3395, and then this executive one, which includes all federal land and water. And so it, it is a bit of an issue when we think of Gulf of Mexico. I, if you followed production, we had this big uptick in production in the last date in November because um, Gulf of Mexico production dropped 700,000 barrels a day and came back. So we're, we're north of 11 million barrels per day now again, because of the Gulf of Mexico. But for these operators, it's a pretty big deal because it's a, it's a chunk of their production and they have these leases and Chevron mentions, they're like, well, we have the leases. You know, we assume that we're going to be able to get the permits. Gets a little tricky of like, are you going to be able to get the permits or do you have like, they don't actually know yet. And the same thing for the same thing for BP is that obviously they have a position in, in offshore and they basically say, Hey, we welcome all this legislation. We welcome being in the Paris Climate Accords and everything. And so they sort of pay lip service that this is just not um, not a big deal. And I think there is some real risk that we would see declining production. It, we're, we are going to see declining production in the Gulf of Mexico if indeed these operators cannot have these permits. Although, to be fair, in the Gulf of Mexico, this is much larger capital intensive operation. So you just don't do it. You don't do it willy nilly. Um, you can't just do a $10 million something for 10 million bucks and, and back out. So this is something long, you know, large capital outlays that's a lot different than than onshore U.S. shale. But it's, it's something important to know because I think we can see a drop in production. And also the Gulf of Mexico provides a massive amount of revenue um, to the federal coffers. And it's a really important to realize that. There oh, that, that doesn't matter, though. It's MMT. We just run the credit card up. Apparently, yeah. So Deficits I mean, don't matter. I think it was Wall Street Journal did a pretty good job on, on citing the studies. The uh, University of Wyoming put out a study putting out um, the hundreds of millions that's going to be lost in hundreds of millions that will be lost in Wyoming. And near, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions that's going to be lost in, in the state of New Mexico. And people say, well, this will be when when this actually happens. Right. When you it's going to decline. It starts declining. Right. When you the moment businesses are anxious and they start pulling back, which trust me, this can happen in as quickly as six months. And they're already just, they're already spending their capital on lawyers right now. So they're not going to be, they're going to start firing people or letting them go if they're not busy. Um, and they're only going to be able to drill up what they can. So this is going to start having an immediate impact. But it's interesting that the majors just didn't, you know, they didn't give a lot of color and illumination on it because they they don't have it. You know, they don't yet have the um, have the information. So we're going to have to wait to see that. And I think what will be really interesting is we didn't see, you know, ConocoPhillips bought Concho and they talked a little bit about it and they basically said, hey, we got, we think this is a 60 day moratorium to a degree. I mean, they mentioned how bad it would be if it wasn't, you know, and this is not the course that the U.S. should be going, but they said this is a 60 day moratorium and we expect we can continue to get our permits. That's not what's going to happen. I, I thoroughly don't. I do not think that's what's going to happen, that this is just a 60-day pause. Um, and that they bought Concho, so they are really, really exposed on that front. And that's going to be very problematic. So you're saying that there may be a disconnect between what investor relations says and what reality is? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I've always been, I've read through the earnings call. I love earnings season. I can't wait for the next podcast because we're going to have, well, in the next few weeks, we'll have all the the independence. And I love it because you, you learn a ton. But I also kind of like... It is like roast. It's like I like ripping on them and analyzing and putting it back back together. All right. Well, I think you you gave it to BP, which is fine by me. Um, let's finish with a discussion of what could happen with Dakota Access this week. Yes. So you think, based on some conversations with people in DC, there's a good chance that the Army Corps will order Dapple to shut in and remove barrels. Uh, we wrote about this week 
Um, at East Daily, we, we focus on the midstream. We map 2,300 pipeline receipt points and model 1,100 assets from the ground up. We map every rig and every well to a gathering and processing system. So we're very tuned into what could happen if DAPL gets shut down. Um, bottom line is it's it's definitely it will increase netbacks by a certain amount of, of dollars, probably probably five bucks off the midpoint as things go to rail and probably discourages some activity at the margin. Um, but you seem to think on on balance that uh, the DAP will get shut in this week. I mean, I think that there's so I've been saying that if you're just paying attention to the the first uh, order from Secretary of Interior and then the executive orders that it, and you know, two hours into being um, in office that they axed Keystone Excel, that this, it's not very hard for me to say, yes, I'm pretty sure that they're going to empty Dakota Access. The legal, there's interesting legal repercussions for that because essentially they don't have the permit, right? So they're saying you got to do this environmental impact statement and that's under review, but the Army Corps of Engineers is I, supposedly going to come out next week and and say something. And it sounds like that's probably not going to go in favor and of... Um, that's not going to go in favor of Dakota Access. And to be very, very fair, I mean, Dakota Access has been riddled with controversy from the very beginning. So it is it is a um, this pipeline is 570,000 barrels per day. It goes from North Dakota to uh, to Potoka, Illinois. And then there's a line which I'm correct. The line that goes from Potoka. Let's just pause for a second. All right. Trisha got interrupted again by Axel. Well, he was really just chewing on my hand and we almost had a fight. He's been extremely high maintenance. This All week. right. Back to our train of thought on Dakota Access. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, Dakota Access is a, and you, I, I would like to, I want to clarify for our, for our listeners because we've been talking about, you know, impacts to North Dakota, federal land, and Dakota Access. And I want to clarify where the pipe is. This pipe goes from North Dakota to Potoka, Illinois. It's 570,000 barrels a day. It was controversial because they it can't, it started running in 2017, but the whole existence of it was controversial because it went through um, the Sandy Rock Sioux Tribe protested against this in North Dakota. I mean, they managed to get a, a huge, huge group of protesters together to push back on this, and yet it still went through, and they were able to, to push this through essentially. And Only because Trump won the election. There yeah. was the possibility, had he not won, that you would have had a 99% complete pipeline with a with a truck looping the final stage there. Right. And, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, so yes, that piece of pipeline, so people have said, well, could you just have the decommission that portion and then you just run it? And the problem is, I think that you have the, there was an existing pipeline, right? I think it was the EDCOP that they... The pipeline basically from Potoka to St. James. So what makes this pipeline valuable is that the crude goes from Potoka and from North Dakota to Potoka, Illinois, and then it goes from Illinois to St. James, Louisiana. And so obviously you're getting great netbacks. This is where... And you go around Cushing. And yes, you're you're bypassing Cushing. You're getting light Louisiana sweet pricing. And it literally single-handedly, you know, lessened that differential considerably in North Dakota. So I wouldn't recommend looking at like CME Clearbrook prices because, you know, there I think that is like minus a buck 50 right now. That's not reflective of what operators are actually getting for a discount. You always have a discount for North Dakota crude because it's so far away from refining centers. Additionally, you have it because you you compete in some senses with Canadian crude. And so it's it's up there and it transports. So if we if we just think about the um, I want to get 
East Daly's perspective and your personal perspective on this. But if we just give our listeners some background on the Williston Basin, and I've always like, I am a Bakken girl. Like I have on their notes here, it's like I had Brock and the Bakken originally written on here because this is, I cut my teeth on it and I, I love the Bakken for a lot of reasons. But the Bakken basically tapped out at 1.2 million barrels per day pre like 2014. Mm-hmm. Then it declined. It lost a couple hundred thousand barrels a day and then it came back. And we've been at like rocking and rolling at 1.5, like pushing boundaries of production. And then it came off a cliff, um, right? COVID production came off. And this was one of the first plays that we saw, like for the first time ever in North Dakota, new wells producing, you know, a thousand barrels a day were actually shut in. And then production has since in the Wilson Basin, we're back to 1.2 million barrels per day. And I was talking with, um, you know, I did some research on the, on the pipeline side to make sure I had the numbers right. And uh, so you can correct me or if you disagree with some of this, but right now it looks as though, so D- Dakota Access has a nameplate capacity of 570,000 barrels per day, but it's not running. It's running probably near full because they had these credits when, you know, they weren't running everything. And so it looks like operators are running as much as they can into Dapple right now, which suggests that they think that they may not be able to use those credits later because they think it's going to get shut in. It's a bet. And that the other pipelines aren't running complete. But if you stack up the numbers, North Dakota has about a nameplate, about 820,000 barrels a day of pipeline capacity. Gets a little more tricky into the markets that you get into. But, you know, that's if you take away Dakota access, you still have 820,000 barrels a day of pipe capacity. But all pipes aren't created equal and all markets are not created equal, correct? Right. Definitely all, all markets are not created equal. Um, you could see a little bit of pushback up into, into Canada. Um you know, I mean, it's basic supply and demand. If you if you reduce the price by an extra five bucks for transportation cost per by shifting to the crew by rail, then you're going to see less production activity at marginal wells. Um, we also pointed out in the uh, Interplus Bruin acquisition that there was five thousand barrels a day that was still shut in, that they probably were going to bring back online as part of that acquisition as low hanging fruit. But some of that uh, workover capital required to do that may not be spent because of that. And it's just very clear that there are only a few basins in the United States where you could have egress capacity problems. One is natural gas in the Northeast with MVP, which is another pipeline that might not get finished for regulatory issues um the other one is <laughs> the other one is the Bakken where if Dapple gets shut in then all of a sudden you have the only basin in the U.S. that has any crude egress problems and you're well into having to move things to rail and not only that but it will take moving the rail cars in place so you you actually don't have perfect elasticity you can't immediately um solve the problem if Dapple gets shut, shut in and is ordered to drain. Now, people are probably making contingency plans, but there are some weird things that will go on with clearbook differentials when that happens, if it happens. You, well, and th- there has to be, because if you look at the actual, so that that 820,000 barrels a day in nameplate capacity, I mean, there's pipes that, so there's pipes right now that are not running full. There were pipes that were not even running full or I'm probably nearing full 1.5 million barrels a day of production, but the Plains pipe that goes north, I mean, there's 70,000 barrels a day there that you can take crude north. That that crude just goes from North Dakota, though, into basically Enbridge's mainline system, which then ends up back in Clearbrook into the Midwest. So you're just you're going basically on the same line. You take about you take 245,000 barrels a day through Enbridge into Clearbrook 
so that's if you're you're probably full there. And then it's really the true like the true company systems that I think there's where there's some flexibility in that they're trying to increase that uh, or the. Uh, an extension that goes basically from North Dakota to Montana, which would grab a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. And then they could take that into that equality pipeline, which I believe became in service last year. And that's a 200,000 barrel a day pipeline that basically runs through Wyoming and ends up in Guernsey. So essentially we're going to end up with a lot of crude in Guernsey. Yes. Um, so a couple things first for any listeners, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a com guy, not a org guy. So if anybody wants a really sexy fancy chart of all the flows on all the lines all the capacities and our expectation of what things look like pro forma with and without dapple sales at eastdaily.com or ebellamy at eastdaily.com you can reach out and we'll give you the precise data and a good forecast um yeah so the analysis we're actually running right now there's a guy named matt lewis i work with who i think is is uh he's he is a He's a savant of pipeline analysis. I think he's one of the sharpest guys in the world. I just did a webinar for our clients on the Permian Highway and the impact of Permian Highway and Whistler on gas egress out of the Permian with him. He's working this week on an analysis of what shifting volumes are going to do to Guernsey. Guernsey's going to get slammed. And if you own capacity out of Guernsey, you are in business. Oh, because yeah. Because the, the marginal, the marginal uh, barrels are definitely going to fill up on all the, the rest of the, the pipelines coming out of the box. And I think that's where, and this is where I sort of position myself of explaining this stuff is that I think that the if you're watching the reduced production in Wyoming, and you're producing a couple hundred thousand barrels a day in Wyoming, but that's going to decline. So you will have less production in Wyoming. You're not going to have so much of a decline in production in Colorado because of uh, federal regulations, but really just because of of, of post regulations and the the legislation. Yeah, that Col- Colorado has its own secular issues for sure. Yeah, so that's and that's been declining. Production is going to decline and sort of continue. So there's some, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to be able to do that. But really, do, do you think Weld County should secede from? Colorado and join Wyoming. You know, I was, uh, my county, Moffat County was this, we, I think we were on like CNN long time ago, maybe two, whenever the seceding thing was going on 10 years ago or whatever, my, the town, the county I was from was the county that was like on CNN for wanting to secede and just, cause we touch, we're like, we border with Wyoming. And so they just wanted to be like, yep, we'll just add a little, little rectangle on the bottom to, to Wyoming. Anyway, sorry for the digression. I just yeah, think so- it's hilarious. Cause I, I, I'm going to bet if you put if you put it to Weld County residents, they'd want to be they're culturally a lot more like Wyoming. Yeah. I mean, I know when I drive into Weld County, we did. When we drove into Weld County when we were taking our photos of my uncles and we were doing it for the podcast. I immediately feel more at home when I see the pump jacks and the mountains and the the barns. It's just me and my cowboy would seem to fit in a little better. But anyways, that's a digression. I think that the pipeline situation, so Guernsey, you're going to have a lot of crew at Guernsey. You're obviously going to impact differentials there, but there are some plays to be made. There's some, you know, there is some opportunities within Wyoming on the pipe space and there's some ability to do that. So it's it's not as though North Dakota is completely screwed, but it, it doesn't help the situation by any means, especially given that you don't have the federal land. And especially given that the administration has sort of um, back channeled uh, or back, uh, sorry, not back channeled that they, um, they took a step back on the tribal, the position on tribal lands to which they had no authority in the first place. Um, oh, they, they really screwed up there. They basically the back- Utes gave them a smackdown. They did. Oh, I do want to clarify in our last podcast, I didn't have good numbers for that. And I, I said something like 20, I, I just was speaking out of my ass. So I'll clarify that 
production in the Uinta Basin, and this is why the Utes care about this. So if you map production in the Uinta Basin and you look at where the U Indian tribe is, it, it is relevant. Like they overlay it. So they have some production. It's about 65,000 barrels a day. It's been relatively steady. This is this waxy crude. If you impact this production too, you have implications for refineries in Utah. I mean, we have, oh, we also have, you know, Refining margins, that was a theme in all these earnings calls, are extremely poor and have not done well. And so when your refinery margins are thin and you, you're trying to produce gasoline and you're trying to produce some diesel, but you don't want jet fuel, you know, it gets very complicated. And so it's been an absolute catastrophe. And whether or not oil prices go up, we are going to see, um, we're probably going to see increased prices in the Rockies because we're, we're starting to lose refineries. Uh, Holly Frontier is out and is going to go down in Cheyenne. So when you don't have local refineries, you see increased prices in gasoline. And they may blame that on Biden, whether or not it's his fault. Um, and this is that's that's just the reality when gasoline prices go up. So And that's something that we could definitely feel in the Rockies. Uh, I think that the other piece on Dakota Access is just that we have 200,000 barrels a day going via rail now. So the fact that you have ample pipeline capacity and you still have rail, you have to ask yourself why. And that's because that can be part because of contracts or whatever it is. But rail is relatively flexible, right? It's that that's it's you can rail the barrel um, and you don't have to put, you know, all these contracts through a pipe. So it has the flexibility. Most of that's going to the West Coast and some of it's going to the East Coast. You don't have any really going to St. James like you did historically because you have Dakota, the Dakota Access Pipeline um, that takes it there. That 200,000 barrels a day rail, I would guess, is going to easily go up another 200,000 barrels a day just because you're going to have barrels that really want to get to St. James. And the impacts on, I'd love to, you can give me your thoughts on this, but the impacts on it could impact the differentials for LLS. I mean, you're going to have six, 500,000 barrels a day that's not going into St. James that was. Uh, St. James also, the, again, this is the Gulf Coast major refining center in Louisiana. And St. James in particular, like the Gulf Coast is known for having heavy complex refineries, lots of cokers, they want the heavy stuff. St. James has the light, sweet refining capacity in just more simple refineries. So they were perfect fit for this Bakken crude, and they built out massively rail capacity to unload like these unit trains. And that's really what you need is the ability to do this. The other thing to note is that North Dakota does have, I mean, they've been sort of mothballed and unused, but they have a massive amount of rail capacity. So I think we are going to see, and I'm sure if there's folks in North Dakota already gearing up for this, I think we're going to see rail volumes increase in this, this come up, at least I think by a couple hundred thousand. Right. This is, we're still talking contingent upon the Army Corps shutting in Dapple. So I'm going to push you. Give me a probability estimate on that happening based on the conversations you've had with people in D.C. I think the conversations that people have had in D.C., also just the fact that if you're, research, if you're reading the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal and that I'm not the only person saying it now and there's there's other analysis entity, you know, groups in D.C. that are saying it, um, I think it's pretty high. I think it's 75% chance that this, this pipe gets emptied. <sighs> and I think that – and I think it is a precedent. It's that we – you know, they first thing did Keystone Excel and, you know, the ability to do this, this under climate, the executive order on climate change. I think there was this guy. I'm happy to admit that I'm wrong and, and you know, I'm OK with that. But I am a betting person. If I was drinking, I'd probably take a higher bet on that. Uh -huh. um, but I think that it's I think the chance that it gets and maybe not next week, maybe not. It doesn't happen next week. But I think that Dakota Access is forced to empty. The risks are, I think, extremely high. And then they have to execute per the court an environmental impact statement, which is more challenging than an environmental assessment. Historically, the EIS has not been used to block projects, though. And I think it's hard to draft an EIS that says this safely operating pipeline that's already built poses an environmental threat 
Um, and I think it's important to point out that Dakota Access morphed into something that really wasn't necessarily about oil and gas per se. It was that was certainly a part of it. It was more about um, treaties and the poor performance of the federal government in basically providing, you know, making good on historical promises to Native Americans. And it, it morphed into a wedge issue on that, which I think then spiraled out of control and a lot of, and caused some dissent even within the tribe. So it did, and, and but- we should also, and I should also point out that the, the, the tribes, as many as there are hundreds, there is no one block opinion on this. Some no. are very pro oil and gas. Some aren't. The, you've got, you know. It's so like, I mean, yeah. within North Dakota, you have the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, which is against this, and then you have the Fort Brushold Reservation, which has a lot of Bakken Kudo on it and in production. And I think that's that's hard for. Right. for so the, why so why do you think that the the North Dakota government, the North Dakota Pipeline Authority, who where our our friend and the guy we, we respect, Justin Krinkstad, we know he's not necessarily the one coming up with the policy. Mm-hmm. Lynn Helms, mm-hmm. like why are they not waving the flag and saying this matters? This is a this is a big problem for us and being more vocal about it. Well, you know, and they know me well, so if they hear this, they'll they'll I'm sure I'll be getting some phone calls, but I I don't think North Dakota has done a good one they didn't do a good job being in front of Dakota Dakota Access in the beginning. They weren't um, even out there. They weren't at out all. there, they didn't say anything. But to be I don't think we should give energy transfer should not get a pass on this. The company that built the Dakota Access pipeline, I saw them speak and present uh before the pipeline was ready to go. I saw them in North Dakota at one of the Wilson, the big Wilson Basin Petroleum Conference and they were very confident that this was going to go through. It was no big deal. They were very they frankly they they sounded a little cocky and they were talking about the rolled, you know, the steel that they were using was all US steel that they were using unions and because of all these things that they were using with US manufactured steel and they were, you know, using union employees to do this, that it was a, a sure deal. And when asked in their earnings calls and when, you know, this, when everything was a mess and the protesting was, was really high, when asked the earnings call, they said, you know, we just didn't, we, we didn't understand the, the importance of social media. And I thought, you know, we already had Keystone Excel and everything. So you can't, you don't really have that excuse. Uh, if it had been 10 years ago, you could have maybe given them a, a little pass on not understanding the relevance of social media. But I don't think that's enough. I think that a lot of people didn't do their homework. I think a lot of people didn't appreciate that they need to work better with these communities to have this because it sounded like there was a lot of issues not teased out. Um, pipelines are the best, like the safest way to actually transport crude oil by, by far and away. Um, you, we are doing it very safely via rail, but we simply don't have the volumes that we used to. And we did have, there were times that we had a lot of accidents right. and that was in the media all the time. And then there was a push for pipelines. And we have this thing in America called nimbyism where nobody wants this in their backyard. Um, and it's, or bananaism. Or banana. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. I mean, people that want, you know, I worked with terminal operators at the nonprofit I was with in DC, the Energy Policy Research Foundation, and those terminal operators were moving ethanol um, onto the East Coast. And ethanol was, this is what people on the East Coast wanted, right? Into their refineries. And it was part of the renewable fuel standard. It was probably lowering GHG emissions. It was about energy security. And yet they didn't want the ethanol coming into their communities because those train cars could blow up. And I mean, we have the same things of building actually wind farms in Colorado of, of, you know, actually permitting and commissioning things because nobody wants them around their homes. Same thing with solar, actually. It's very, very difficult. These things sound great, but it's very, very difficult to do. I mean, this just gets back to this pipeline. This pipeline is existing and running. So I think that, you know, even if you emptied it and the fact that it's done via these orders, it's going to be there. Like two years from now, could that come back into service? Um, 
I'm thinking that, you know, maybe it doesn't with under this administration, but in theory it could. Um, and you're now creating, I think, this situation in the oil industry where it's like, do you just take a pause for four years? you know, or something like that, or you just try to sort of survive it and then sort of deal with this. But it does seem like this two-year window is beginning to look a little more, um, that that two years things could be really messy and then sort of reality hits within Congress and people lose their seats and everything and then maybe things shift. Yeah, and even though uh, this is not a show with investment advice, I, I should point out that uh, we do cash flow estimates on midstream companies. Energy transfer runs the pipeline. We think it costs them, if it's shut in, about $1.1 million in EBITDA per day, which is a lot of money, but uh, it's not necessarily a company breaker or anything like that for energy transfer. I think that two things. I think energy transfer would you know, probably privately acknowledge they would maybe do things a little differently than, than they played out. The zeitgeist also really changed in the middle of this project, and they were sort of the poster child for for every grievance against a pipeline that had ever happened. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I did they do everything perfectly? No, but I think they also got the 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 perfect storm of pushback. And then we should also acknowledge that there's a lot that you know, even with BP. Um, there's a lot that happens in the background that never, that never makes it to the earnings calls. Yep. So I know for a fact that they negotiated privately. And, and, you know, if you look at the way Kinder Morgan operates in the building of, of any of their pipelines, all the big pipeline operators, you know, they, they go out and they have a very focused community, community relations effort. They will go in and make donations to the fire departments to bolster emergency services and I, I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that's very easy to give them a bad rap because of the big, nasty oil and gas companies. You know, they're they are providing the means to fuel yeah, and civilization. And it's it's easy yeah. play to it's I have a fun time because I, I I study this and analyze it. And, you know, I welcome people to push back and argue with me because it's I actually I, obviously Ethan knows this. I enjoy arguing. So but I mean, this is Robert what, Norton. Yeah, Robert Norton. <laughs> Robert's going to be our first guest, I think, on this podcast. And, and Ethan's just going to ref the two of us, like, duking it out. Uh, I might even wear a referee jersey. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be here at this kitchen table. We'll see how he handles Axel, too. Uh, but I think, I, so that all being said, I think that's fair, is that these companies are now, I I think something to, to put into context is that these companies are all trying to do the best they can in this situation as well. So, you, this is the most incredible investor pressure and scrutiny that they've ever faced. So from an ESG perspective, from just the momentum shifting away from oil and gas. So if you're publicly traded, there is no win right now. You can't say, you almost can't say anything to sort of make this situation work for you. Um, so they're just doing the best they can. And BP has taken a very significant and hard bet on renewables thinking that this is the way and that's because they want to position their company in that direction and you know that's what they're choosing to do my point is just that um you can't have your you know cake and eat it too and just oil companies may not just like a lot of other companies may get hurt by investing so hard in renewables because they just don't have the returns um that a lot of folks are used to in the oil and gas community which is you know even on a low end is more like 10 percent and I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of the threats that the industry faces when the people they're trying to appease aren't going to be satisfied by scope one emissions improvements or scope two emissions or scope three. The, you know, the only satisfaction they will get is 
no more oil and gas production. They want to leave it in the ground. So in my view, you know, trying to appease the industry's opponents that want your core business to go away entirely, which is unrealistic for how human civilization operates, but also is an existential threat to the company itself. I just don't think the attitude of appeasement works. Well, and that's the biggest, I think that's the single biggest shift. And it's, um, I think a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast and say, you're being too political. And I think something that people have to realize, and I've always been very frank. I mean, I'm on the record in off the record presentations with, you know, with OPEC, with um, Oxford, I always say I'm on the record for it. So I don't mind doing it. And I call a spade a spade. And I think the industry is not doing itself any favors by trying to play this appeasement game. The industry should work hard on, on emissions for sure and should fix things that they can and absolutely do this and innovate their way out of this. But they do have to realize that if you just think that um, literally quoting these earnings calls by ConocoPhillips and others that, you know, they've worked with the Biden, they worked with the Obama administration. I can't believe how many times I've heard that from a CEO. Well, we worked with Biden under the Obama administration. Well, it's a completely different cabinet. It's a completely different makeup. This is this is by no means the same group of people. And you can talk to any analyst in, I mean, I do technical and, and analysis, but like call any policy analyst in Washington, which is the folks I'm talking to, they'll all tell you that the, this, the risk is massive. I mean, it's unbelievably massive. And I think that the, you know, between what the operators are saying and everybody just trying to be quiet and do a bit of a duck and cover, they haven't really decided what they're going to do. I think give give it some time because it hasn't shaken out completely yet what I mean, truthfully, is it going to be the 60-day moratorium? Is it going to be a complete ban? I mean, they haven't completely signaled exactly what they're doing, and I think the industry is somewhat hopeful that they're going to be able to work with them. It just doesn't seem that way, like just being frank and studying this, um, the writings on the wall, it doesn't seem that way at all. And I think that's the piece that I think my business and I value is that actually looking at the data and looking at the numbers and giving you answers and figuring out how to how do you work within this environment. There are opportunities here. And I, I would like to end this on a high note is that when everybody's looking left, that is the time to look right. And you can find all the negativity in this business, but there are states that are going to perform well. Oklahoma is one of them. Gas is, like you noted, gas prices. I mean, if you're hedging gas, you are in a great position. Like you should be hedging the crap out of oil right now, hedging gas to, to the nth degree. And if you are in Oklahoma, if you are in the Haynesville, if you are in Texas, you are really well positioned in this business. I love it. Next week, we get earnings from Plains All-American Post-Market, which will come after the EIA's short-term energy outlook. On Wednesday, we get the DOE's weekly petroleum status report. Inventories have been coming in. We'll see if that persists. And on Thursday, we will have earnings from PBF Logistics. With that, I am the co-host of the Petro Nerds podcast, Ethan Bellamy, uh, working at East Daily Capital, where we do the midstream. I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petronerds, where we do the upstream and everything oil and gas. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Bye.